Ephesians chapter 1 can be found on page 1174. That's 1174. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, for the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So turn with me then to Ephesians chapter 1, and that is on page 1174. Really helpful to me if you were to have that passage open in front of you, so we can learn from it together. Page 1174. And so let me pray for us now. Lord, open our hearts to your word. We acknowledge that they are naturally hard and sinful. We therefore need your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to make them ready for the entrance of your word, and that your word will bring life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What comes into your mind when you hear the word church? Church, of course, is people and not buildings. And one picture that may come to mind is from the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, where we have this glorious picture of young Christians in the early church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, devoting themselves to one another in fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. They shared all that they had and were told that daily the Lord was adding to their number. It's a lovely picture, isn't it, of the early church meeting together. But the New Testament also makes it clear that churches and congregations this side of heaven, here in this world, are not perfect. 
indeed as our, our series in 1 Corinthians that we've been doing up to the beginning of the summer made so clear some churches are very, very far from perfect. So in some churches there is backbiting and bickering and worldliness and lovelessness and immorality and backsliding. And when we're exposed to those kind of things, that can be a real disappointment to us. It can cause us to lose heart, and it can even cause us to be cynical about the church. And those little cameos that there are in the New Testament of what the church is to be, maybe we say to ourselves, well, they're just too good to be true. At the uh, British Open this year, all eyes were on veteran golfer Tom Watson. And he, certainly then, he might now be 60 years old, but certainly then he was 59 years old. He was ranked very, very low in the rankings. He was 1,374 in sporting terms. He was way, way past his peak. Yet for the whole of the Open, he was right up there, at the top of the leaderboard. And everyone was just gunning for Tom Watson to win the British Open. Of course, only to be beaten at the end in the playoff by Stuart Sink. And one of the headlines the following day said this, Old Tom's story was too good to be true. You know, a kind of great dream to have. But the reality is just so different. And sometimes that's what we exactly think about the New Testament's teaching on what the church is to be. It is just too good to be true. It's a kind of dream, because our experience of it is so different. And so we end up saying, well, why is the church like this? Why is this my experience of church? Is this all that there is that I'm experiencing at the moment, or should I be expecting something else? Well, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a letter, amongst other things, about what it means to be church. He wrote it in 62 AD or thereabouts. He was in prison, not because he had done anything bad or wrong, but because he was simply a follower of Jesus. He was preaching Jesus Christ, that Jesus is Lord. People didn't like that, so they put him in prison for that. And he's writing to Christians who are in Ephesus, and to Christians who are in that region of Ephesus, the ruins of which you can go and visit today in modern-day Turkey. And when the Apostle writes to these Ephesians, he writes into the most explosive social and cultural division and barrier that existed in the world at that time that existed in the ancient world. And that was the division, the barrier between Jew and Gentile. You see, to the Jew, the Gentile was an object, not a person, but an object of contempt and scorn and utter hatred. So if a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, then the funeral of that Jewish boy would be held. He was contaminated, as good as dead, therefore disowned by his family and his community. The barrier between Jew and Gentile was total and absolute and complete, and there was just nothing that could remove that. So imagine then, if you were a Christian Jew, 
You were a converted Jew in Ephesus. And you walked into church one morning, like all of us have done today. You walked into church one morning, and the first person that you bump into is a Christian Gentile. So, Christian Jew bumping into Christian Gentile. What will you think? And what will you do? What should you think? And what should you do? Well, at the very start of his letter, Paul, this apostle of Christ Jesus, as we're told at the beginning of verse 1, Paul puts down a fundamental marker. So just follow the passage through with me in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look, says Paul, whether you are a Jewish Christian or whether you are a Gentile Christian, it really doesn't matter. Because in the family of God, because of Jesus and his cross, that division has been taken away. That division has been destroyed. So we are blessed together in Christ, we are equally blessed, and we have every spiritual blessing that there is in the heavenly places. Now, if you are a Christian this morning, if you are, verse 1, as Paul describes us, a saint, you're somebody who is trusting in Jesus, then this is who you are. This is your identity. This is your status. And it is your identity and it's your status that matters in terms of eternity. You are in Christ. And you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And when it is that we begin to grasp this and understand this and believe this, it transforms the way we think about the past and the present and the future. In fact, what it does is that it gives to us a completely new and fresh worldview with God and with Jesus at the very centre of it. So, verse 4, it shapes the way we see our past. Verse 4, He, God, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the power, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now please do not be bothered by predestination. Predestination is not about God arbitrarily choosing some and not others. The Bible never ever sees it like that, even if we do, and even if some of our friends tell us that we should be seeing it like that. Instead, what we see in history and I think history in the light of Scripture is the best judge of this. What we see in history is God choosing Abraham. And then God chooses a nation, Israel. And then God ultimately, of course, chooses his son, the Christ. And all those who are in the Christ, in the Lord Jesus, so that they will be a blessing to others by bringing the gospel to the world. Now that essentially is what predestination is all about. It is about God choosing some for the benefit of all. That all might hear the gospel. Because the Lord, as the Apostle Peter tells us, does not wish that any should perish, 
but that all should come to repentance. So if you are in Christ today, it is because you deliberately and definitely have been chosen by God. You have been predestined by God. You have been adopted by God to be his son, to be his child, to be his heir. And all of this amazingly happened even before the world was created. As if to say, look, all of this is by his grace, and it's by his grace alone. So that's our past. What about our present? Verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now this takes us to the heart of what true Christian experience is. Christian experience today, in the present, now, is to know and to be sure that our sin is forgiven. That the judgment that our sin deserves has been taken. That we are free from its penalty, even that penalty of death. And yet we also know that all of this has come about at great, great cost, because it is, in the words of Paul, through his blood. Through the blood of Jesus, God's only Son, through that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in our place. So our identity in Christ, it shapes the way we see our present, our past, our present, but also our future. Because in Christ, God has a plan for all history. You won't read that in your history books or anywhere else. But it is revealed for us in Scripture that in Christ God has a plan for all of history and it's summed up for us in verse 10. And we're told that his plan is this, to unite, which literally means to gather up. It's a sum total. It's bringing together. To unite all things in him in Christ things in heaven and things on earth. I remember at school playing around with magnets and playing around with iron filings. I'm sure probably you did this as well. And what you would do is just to scatter the iron filings across the work surface and then you would get your magnets and you would put your magnets in the middle of that work surface and the iron filings immediately and inevitably would be drawn to the magnet whether they liked it or not. And that's what it will be like at the fullness of time when the lordship and the kingship and the rule of Jesus Christ is brought to bear on the whole of creation. Everything, everyone, every single person in this building today, every single person who has ever lived will be gathered to King Jesus and we will be placed under his rule. And of course, for some, that will be a day of intense sorrow because they have not trusted in him when they had the chance to do that. But for others who are in Christ, from all nations and all tribes and all languages, it will be a day of great joy, everlasting joy, that can never be taken from us. Now, the thing is, this is what the Christian is. This is your identity. This is your status. This is your world view. You are in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we need to ask ourselves, therefore, is this the way we think about ourselves? 
Is this how we think about other Christians, our brothers and sisters in the Lord? Have we really got to grasp who is really at the centre of the universe? So let's move on then into verse 11 onwards, because we have to ask the question, well, what does this mean for Paul's original hearers? So, for example, what does it mean for the Jewish believer? Well, we're told in verse 11, in him we, that is to say Jewish Christians, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, Jewish Christians, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. So says Paul, look, if you are a Jewish Christian, don't be tempted to think that God has given up on the Jews because of his mission to the Gentiles, because of his mission to the ends of the earth. Certainly not. When you put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, you became a full member of his church. You are a true child of God. And you will always be that for eternity. So that's the Jewish Christian. What about then the Gentile Christian? Where does that leave them? Well, verse 13. In him, in Christ, you also, you Gentile Christians, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance, Jew and Gentile Christian, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So if you are a Gentile Christian, says Paul, don't think that you're a second-rate Christian. Don't think that you're second best compared to some other kind of believer, in this case the Jewish believer. No, your inheritance is the same as his. You too are a full member of God's family. You also are a true child of God. And all of this is because you are in Christ. You are equally in Christ, Jew and Gentile together. Now let me just push the pause button at this point and ask this question. What happens when someone becomes a Christian? I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question. Do you know what happens when someone becomes a Christian? Well, verse 13 and 14 tell us from two different perspectives. So, first, there is something that we do which is very outward and visible. So, verse 13, we hear the word of truth. I suppose, in a sense, that's what we're all doing, preacher and hearer. We're all doing this. We're hearing the word of truth this morning. But it's not just that, because it's also, verse 13, that we recognise this word of truth for what it is. It is the gospel of our salvation that will save us on that last day. And so therefore, we place our weight on this Lord Jesus. We believe in him, we believe in this saviour and this rescuer. It's all there in verse 13, of what happens when someone becomes a Christian. So that's what we do, which is very outward and visible. But what does God do? Well, God's work is inward, it's inside. God's work is invisible. We can't actually see it with the eye. And yet it's wonderfully real. And it's described at the end of verse 13, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
a legal document in the ancient world, and I think probably legal documents in the world today, they're sometimes stamped with a seal. And the purpose of that seal is to show who has drawn up the document, to give it authority and significance, and to promise that its contents will all come to pass. And when someone becomes a Christian, it is, as it were, they are stamped with God's seal of his promised Holy Spirit. You can't see this happening with your eyes, and yet you know it's real. Because God, by his Holy Spirit, he takes up residence in your life. And so he assures you that you fully belong to God, that you are a true child of God, and so that your future inheritance of heaven, indeed your future inheritance of Christ himself, is guaranteed. And friends, this is the assurance, surely, that every single Christian in church today at St. Elizabeth's is to have. Because we are in Christ, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Every Christian is to have this assurance that you are truly a child of God and will remain that for eternity because you are in Christ. Do you have that? Do you have that assurance? Let me put this in a, a different kind of way. Regardless of what your age is, regardless of what your gender is, regardless of which school you go to, regardless of the kind of education you've had, whether you've got a degree or haven't got a degree, regardless of what kind of job you have, or indeed if you have a job, regardless of how much money you have, whether you're rich or poor, regardless of whether or not you're able to support the building proposal on the 4th of October, if you are in Christ, you fully belong to God. You are fully his. And you will be for eternity. You are safe. You see, sometimes the social and the cultural and the natural divisions and barriers that exist in churches and exist in society at large, they can rob us of that assurance. So we look at ourselves and we look at each other with the wrong kind of spectacles on, in the wrong kind of way. We do need to make sure that we don't do that. So what then can we do to make sure we don't do that? Well, we must do what Paul does in verses 15 to 22. So verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul prays. There's three things I think that we need to ask ourselves from verse 15 onwards. The first thing is this. Are we praying? Are we praying? Very basic, but it's very fundamental. So in the light of what Paul has been saying up to verse 14, all this stuff to do with our identity and our status in Christ, the very first thing that Paul does is to pray. So are we praying? I don't mean so much, are we praying when we come to church? I don't even mean, actually, are we coming to the midweek prayer meeting? Important as those things are, do come to the midweek prayer meeting. We need you there. But what I'm really driving at is this. 
Are you praying on your own? Paul was praying on his own. Are you praying on your own? When you're at home, do you pray? Let me just ask you. Uh, Again, I asked this question of of myself as I was preparing this. Uh, So I ask it of all of us. What do you do more of? Watch telly, read the newspapers, work the computer, tend the garden, or pray? What do we do more of? What comes out on top? If we're not praying, then let's start today. And a great place to start is just simply by praying this prayer. Pray what Paul prayed. Second thing to ask is this. Are we praying for others? Now, of course, it's not wrong to pray for ourselves. We should do that. Indeed, we should pray this prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 for ourselves. But we also need to pray it for others. Paul was praying it on his own for others. So should we. Why not just ask somebody over coffee, look, will you pray this Ephesians prayer for me? That'll be good for you, because you know that they're praying these things for you, but also for your friends as well to get praying. A good way to pray for others is to start using the parish, the church prayer diary, which I know Gary McMurray has just done a revision of recently. Do use that. Are we praying? Are we praying for others? And then the third thing is this, what should we pray for others? Well, pray what Paul prays. Because if you do that, you can be 100% sure that what you're praying is going to be according to God's will, and he will answer that prayer. And Paul's prayer is essentially very, very simple. He prays that God will open the spiritual eyes of Christians to see and to know what they have in Christ to see and to know what their true identity is in him. So, verse 18, their hope in Christ, that you may know what is a hope, that you may know what is a certain future to which God has called you. Verse 18 again, their wealth in Christ, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Gold, silver, banknotes, material possessions is one thing, and those are important things. But spiritual wealth is just so infinitely more important than gold and silver and banknotes. Paul wants us to know that. And so he prays for that. But the big one, I think, is verse 19 onwards, which is their victory in Christ, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Verse 20, the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, the power that exalted him to the right hand of his Father, and verse 21, the power with which he rules over all things, over all creation, and the power with which he will unite all things in Christ at the fullness of time. Did you know that the Church of Christ is a victorious church? I wonder if that's what you think of when you think of the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ is a victorious church. Why? Because Christ is victorious. You cannot sever the head from the body. This is what we are. This is what we have in Christ. We have hope. We have riches. We have victory. 
But Christians need to know this. Christians need to have our eyes, spiritually speaking, they need to be open to this. And God can only do that, and we can only enable that to happen through our prayer. So are we praying? And are we praying for others? And are we praying what Paul prays? So a moment of quiet. Father God, as we meet together this morning, we do pray that in your mercy, in your grace, that you will open the eyes of our hearts, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us in Christ, that we might know the riches that are ours in Christ and that we might know what the victory is that we have in Christ. Please make us a a praying people. In the light of your gospel, as we understand our identity and our status in Christ, calls us to pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.